When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Teresa Runstetler about her new book, Black Ball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the Generation That Saved the Soul of the NBA. Teresa is a scholar of African-American history whose research focuses on the intersection of race, masculinity, labor, and sport, and she is currently a professor at American University. Teresa, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Um, As you probably know, most academics sort of sit alone in their offices reading and writing. And so it's always nice to connect with folks, even virtually, to talk about your work. Yeah, I know. And and writing is such a, yeah, it's such a solitary profession. You know, um, I've done some writing myself and, and, and you're just kind of lost in this world all by yourself. And you know, you share some things with your spouse, but but they don't they're not really in that world with you. Yeah, I mean, I've been really uh, pleased about the response to the book so far. And uh, you just never know how certain arguments are going to hit, especially when you're sort of pushing back on, you know, some of the mythologies of race and labor about particular sports, because folks are very invested in those narratives and in their teams and all of the players as well. Yeah. And um, as you said, as I told you before we came on the air, I loved, I loved how you kind of broke down some of those myths and say, well, wait a minute, you know, this is how it really happened. And I will get into that, but I want to, I want to start with your history a little bit, um, particularly that you were a dancer for the Toronto Raptors, uh, which is awesome. Um, And uh, I'm wondering how that experience kind of shape your perceptions of the NBA and how it may have impacted, you know, your interest in writing this book? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's ironic now I'm actually talking about that personal history, whereas before, especially when I first went to graduate school, I didn't really want to tell my peers that I used to dance for the Raptors because people assume that 
cheerleaders sort of cheering on the sidelines with uh, vacuous minds and, and whatnot. So it's nice to sort of take that as a, a point of reference and actually a point of inspiration for this book. So back in the late 90s, I joined the dance team the second year of the Raptors' existence. I believe that was 1996. It was a while back. I was uh, heading into my third year in university, and somebody dared me to go to the audition. And I said, okay, <laughs> let me try. Um, and I ended up getting all the way to the end and making it onto the team. So it was a little bit unexpected, um, but I had been a trained dancer before that. I'd also been an athlete. Um, and so those things kind of came together in my experience on the Raptors Dance Pack. I think one of the things that I really noticed um, from being on the team for three seasons was exactly how race, masculinity, and labor for the players really intersected on the court and off the court. Um, so I was on the team during the lockout. Um, I guess that was, what, 1999 to 2000? Um, and so we, we experienced what that was like as observers on the side who were anxiously waiting for the season to start. Um, and I saw in the media how, you know, predominantly white sportscasters were casting the players as being too greedy and asking for too much um, and never really questioning why it was that the, the leagues were once again, crying poor and also disparaging their own labor force in the midst of this battle um, during the lockout. So that was one thing that really struck me. And I was like, you know, I, I know some of the players. Yeah, they're young guys with a lot of money, but that just didn't seem to ring true for me. It seemed like there were other issues underneath that needed to be addressed. And I always wondered why was it that people immediately attacked the players without ever questioning what the motivations of the ownership were. Um, and then from a personal perspective, being somebody who, you know, makes a living uh, you know, performing with your body, you kind of get a sense of what it must be like, at least on a smaller level, to be a professional athlete. You have to keep your body up. You have to, you know, perform even when you don't feel like performing. And it does become a job, even though it looks like a lot of fun. Um, and so that experience also helped me to kind of understand what it must be like over the course of, for us, it was like 42 home games. Um, you know, I can only imagine having to perform at the other 40 <laughs> odd away games and how grueling that must have been. Um, but also seeing how the, the team, our own team, the dance pack sort of shifted over time. At the beginning, when the Raptors were kind of more like a startup corporation, I would say, with um, Isaiah Thomas at the helm as GM for whatever his other faults were on the basketball side, at least from our perspective, he gave us so much freedom. Um, he and and the sort of rotating cast of, of owners gave us 
so much leeway to dress how we wanted to, to dance to really current hip hop hits that, you know, might have a little bit of swearing in them. I guess you could get the, uh, the, the family friendly version of those songs. Um, but you know, over time, as it became more corporatized, as the team was bought out by Maple Leaf Sport and Entertainment, and they became much more interested in selling seat license, licenses in their new arena, you saw, you know, the image of the dance pack change. We started wearing smaller costumes. We started, you know, dancing to Motown or Will Smith, which is even more family friendly. So you could really see how race and class determined who we were ultimately performing for, not the folks in the nosebleeds, but um, and and just how we were being presented to the public. And I'm sure the, the players must have felt that as well in the transformation of the team. Yeah. Um, so, so this book really, you know, you focus on the period kind of, I guess, late 60s, you know, starting with Connie in his case and, and up through the 70s. Um, by way of background, how did the... How did the racial ma- racial makeup of the NBA change, you know, from, say, the 50s and 60s to the late 60s, 70s? Yeah, so in the 50s, um, actually 1950 to be more exact, this was the moment when the NBA as a league actually began to desegregate and allow uh, sprinkles of new players into the league. Um, you know, there were a few players who came into the league who, for the most part, were, you know, they weren't the stars of the team. They were the supporting actors. They were the folks who were more so the journeymen who were getting the job done, but not necessarily being high scorers. And so that yeah, they did the dirty work. They were sort of there, um, but they they weren't kind of the marquee players in the league. Once you get into the mid-60s and you have folks like Bill Russell and others emerging, uh, you have Black players taking on a star role, but they're still not dominant in the league numerically. So there was for many years an informal racial quota. Uh, You know, the the league was very um, calculated about how much integration it would uh, allow. Um, So there was this unspoken rule that you could only have a certain number of black players per team. And beyond that, you were in danger of tipping the racial balance and potentially alienating your fans. However, with the rise of the ABA, this really threw a wrench in the efforts to keep the NBA white because now you had a rival league that was establishing franchises that were, you know, in competition with the NBA and the two leagues were competing over talent. And so the ABA started going out and trying to find players who were not already signed to the NBA. They began scouring places like the Eastern League. They began looking at um, 
uh, players more seriously from HBCUs. Um, they also began trying to lure players from the NBA into the ABA. So this, what they called at the time talent war, really sort of broke down that informal racial code or, um, yeah, the informal racial code that said that you could only have a certain number of players, um, black players on any one team. And you started to see with the late 60s and into the early 70s, the makeup of the league going from, you know, maybe 50% or 40% black to anywhere up to 75% black. And not just that, often the starting lineups would be 100% black. Um, the all-star teams and MVPs were consistently now more so um, African-American players. So there was this perception that, uh-oh, what's going to happen to the league in terms of its saleability to uh a largely white fan base. Are they still going to want to follow um, this sport if it's perceived as a black sport? Right. And of course, you know, as you detail in the book, um, as, as the African-Americans kind of grew in numbers, they began to assert, assert themselves as well, right? They began to fight for their economic freedom in many ways. Um, in Connie Hawkins' case, his freedom just to play. Um and I think you did a great job in the book of, of kind of talking about how what was going on in that sense in the NBA was a microcosm of what was taking place in society at large, you know, with with um, the context of the civil rights movement and, and black empowerment in many ways that um, you had a great line in there pertaining to Connie about it was something to affect how the way he was treated by the basketball world mirrored the way he was treated by the, the justice system. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how the, the white establishment in, you know, the owners, the media, white fans, how did they react to this increased number and increased assertiveness of African-Americans? Um, unfortunately, not too well. <laughs> um, I mean, one of the ways to think about this, even thinking about somebody like Connie Hawkins and his style um, of play, uh, very much honed on the, the playground courts of New York City. Um, he was somebody who was graceful, fluid, almost like jazz on the court, slam dunks, um, you know, just these moves that weren't necessarily a part of, uh, you know, white college ball and um, and really the NBA at that time. Um, and so you would think that the NBA, particularly in this period with competition coming from the ABA, with um, the desire to increase its market share, um, because Quite frankly, the NBA was not the NBA it is today back in the late 60s, early 70s. It was still a relatively tiny 
organization. Uh, it, it didn't have a huge media footprint. So much of the teams were actually more so covered on radio and in the newspapers as opposed to on the TV. It had a fairly, you know, small TV contract in, comp in, you know, in comparison to the NBA and the MLB. So you would think that white fans and the white establishment of the NBA would think, whoa, okay, this is an exciting style of ball to watch. We've got Earl Monroe, we've got Dr. J and others who are just, you know, showcasing a style that most folks hadn't been exposed to before at that level. But unfortunately, that style of play, which, you know, derisively was known as playground ball, um, had these racialized connections to things that were happening beyond the court. So in the, the same time period, you have, you know, white flight from the cities, you have the general disinvestment from black communities in the quote unquote inner cities, and you have violence, you have crumbling infrastructure, you have, you know, youths, black youths who seem to be chaotic and out of control and, and, and criminal. And so you have this broader law and order movement that's happening uh, beyond the court. And playground ball, because of its associations to black urban environments, you know, wasn't initially celebrated by fans in the, the white basketball establishment. And you can see in a lot of the reports um, among, for example, uh, mainstream journalists, they would sort of say, oh, you know, this is, um, you know, a sign that these players are ruining professional basketball. It's supposed to be a team game um, that's systematic, where you have hardworking, self-sacrificing players. Of course, this is all racially coded language for white players. Um, and it became a kind of moral judgment against the black players that they were being selfish, lazy, that they were out of control, that they couldn't play the quote unquote fundamentals of basketball. Um, and so in a lot of ways, this fight over what I call the soul of basketball, you know, was really a fight over, you know, racial integration and, you know, the impact of suburbanization and the urban crisis and, you know, law and order politics beyond the basketball court. Yeah. <clears throat> and, um, and really control. I mean, you know, you, as, as I read your book, so much of it was about control and very much, you know, Spencer Haywood's case and Oscar's case and, I, I want to I want to talk about Spencer a little bit because he's so important in the history of the game. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit. Of course, he was allowed into the ABA through the hardship clause. Can you talk a little bit about what the hardship clause was and and how did that change professional basketball? Yeah. So initially, uh, both the NBA and the ABA had what was called a four-year rule. And so essentially the four-year rule was a kind of gentleman's agreement with the NCAA, um, almost saying, we won't touch your players, college players, until they have, you know, 
played out their years of eligibility. We'll allow you to keep that talent pool to yourself. And then through the draft, once they've you know, played all their playing years, they can come into um, our leagues. We're not going to attempt to cherry pick talented players out of the pros or sorry, out of um, the NCAA. And, and we're not going to go for really young players out of high school. That just was not a thing that was happening. Um, but with this talent war between the ABA and the NBA, the ABA said, hmm, we're not able to actually, even if we, uh, you know, sort of wave money in front of NBA players, they don't really want to jump into the ABA. So let's start going for college players. And how do we get around that? Well, we create this clause that says, oh, if, if they have great financial need, then they can bypass, you know, the traditional four years and be drafted into the ABA. Now, of course, this was also something that, again, sort of played into the racial politics of the time, where the folks who were predominantly the hardship cases were predominantly black players because it wasn't that hard to prove financial need on the part of somebody like, for example, Spencer Haywood, who grew up literally picking cotton in the South, who you know came up from nothing, and it was very easy for them to paint you know, his signing to Denver in the ABA as an act of you know, humanitarian racial uplift. Like we're, you know, taking this young man who comes from a, you know, single mother headed household and we're now giving him, mil you know, over a million dollar contract um, and we're setting up his family for life. So this became sort of the way in which the ABA could get around the traditional rules that, uh, basketball leagues had followed previously while also painting themselves as being, you know, good citizens. Right. Um, the other, the other case I, I want to ask you about is, is, uh, is the Oscar case, um, such an important case. And there were really a number of components to that, but, um, you know, from the reserve clause to the, to, to the draft, to the merger, what was kind of the underlying, premise of the Oscar case? What, what were the players really fighting for there? Yeah, so they were really sort of building on and they were building on the antitrust cases of Connie Hawkins, I think, and Spencer Haywood. So Connie Hawkins's case, Hawkins v. NBA, really exposed blacklisting. His case argued that the NBA was operating like a monopoly because they were engaging in a group boycott of his services. And so this was a violation of Sherman anti, the Sherman Act antitrust laws. Spencer Haywood's case, as he tried to jump from the ABA to the NBA, um, again, they were arguing that they were essentially uh, not um, allowing him to practice his profession and that the NBA was operating like a monopoly. Um, 
Once you get to Oscar Robertson, the NBA, this is sort of a tried and true tactic that actually worked in the case of Connie Hawkins and in the case of Spencer Haywood. Spencer Haywood's able to jump into the NBA and bypass the draft because they are able to argue that, you know, uh, without any kind of hardship clause, the NBA is essentially engaging in a group boycott of his services. So what the players begin to argue in Oscar Robertson at all, because he's sort of the figurehead of the case, but also the other, there were other um, complainants in that case. Um, they're basically arguing that, again, the NBA is operating like a monopoly. And in particular, their case brought up the monopolistic practices in total. They mentioned blacklisting. They mentioned the draft, actually, as a suppression of a kind of uh, free market um, negotiation between players and teams. And then they brought up, and this is the most important part of the case, the reserve clause or the option clause, as the NBA called it, which essentially meant that once you signed with a team, that that team had the rights to your contract. They owned your contract. They could decide, you know, on their timeline, uh, you know, based on their whims, whether to trade you to another team or just get rid of you. Um, the player had absolutely no control over his own mobility. It tied you to one team until that team decided it wanted to release you. So folks like Oscar Robertson, who came into the league, was brought in by the Cincinnati Royals. You know, he had no leverage to renegotiate a contract. Um, you know, he had to ask to be traded to the Bucks, but that clause essentially, you know, if you, especially if you weren't a superstar like Oscar Robertson, really gave the upper hand in any kind of negotiation to the teams. And they could systematically suppress all of the wages of the players. And that's why basketball players' salaries were so uh, relatively low until the 1970s. And that case, they eventually, you know, showed all of the reasons why, and the, the, the NBA had a plethora, plethora of reasons why they wanted this reserve clause in place. They said it was for the good of the fans, that, um, you know, players would be jumping from team to team randomly and that there would be no loyalty, there would be no competitive balance in the league. Um, and, you know, particularly in the case of Oscar Robertson, he went and testified in front of a Senate committee that was charged with deciding whether or not the ABA and the NBA should merge. And he said, look, if they merge and the reserve clause stays intact, then you basically put us back into the same situation we were in before there was this competition and interleague rivalry. So essentially, you know, the Senate ended up saying, well, you can merge, but only if you address the issue of the reserve clause. And it took 
So that was 1972. It took another four years for the ABA and the NBA to eventually come to an agreement and one that essentially, uh, you know, stripped away the reserve clause. So this was all, this was a long fight. It was really most of, you know, the early part of the seventies, but what that did getting rid of the uh, reserve clause, that is, is it set players on the path to free agency. And of course, as we know, in 2023, this did not ruin the league. <laughs> you know, this did no, not ruin the league. <laughs> you know, it didn't ruin competition. It didn't do any of the things that the NBA had claimed it would. But it, what it did do was it made it so that players could have a greater share of the profits. So, you know, it was a huge victory. Huge. Absolutely. And, you know, we talk about these issues, you know, we, we have this predominantly black league now. And we're talking about control over labor and control over people's bodies in, in as, you, as you alluded to early. And, you know, when you think about it with, between the four-year rule and the, you know, the, the draft and the reserve clause, there's this, with a predominantly black workforce, there's this tint of slavery. You know, I don't, it's not, I don't want to say they, they weren't slaves, but, you know, there, there's kind of remnants of that. And I wonder, of course, this is all happening on the heels of the civil rights movement. And I wonder how much... Um, what was going on with the civil rights movement, how much that was an inspiration to these players, how much of an impact that had on, on the steps that they were taking? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's difficult to know exactly um, the relationship between activism beyond the court and activism in the context of particularly the NBPA, which was the, National Basketball Players Association, which was their union. Um, but I can speak about it in broader strokes in terms of the fact that once folks like Oscar Robertson and other players uh, began to take leadership roles in the NBA's union, it went from being a very... Uh, almost like a company union. You know? I mean, I don't want to disparage the activism that folks did before, um, you know, the, the early to mid 60s. But they were, you know, not as militant in their stance against the play uh, against the, the team owners. Um, they were more sort of appeasing um, the ownership and didn't ask for real kind of structural changes in contracts. They were asking for little things here and there. But once you had Oscar Robertson in particular heading up the MBPA, one of the things that he did and sort of taking inspiration from the broader civil rights movement was he said, okay, rather than just making the NBPA the province of the superstars, we need to make this actually a more democratic union across the entire workforce of, of you know, the NBA. So we need to recruit black players, we need to recruit, uh, it, you know, especially black players who aren't stars. 
we need to get the journeyman. We need to get everybody as a collective force into and invested in this bargaining union unit so that we actually have a hope of pushing back against um, some of these systems of oppression that you mentioned um, that, you know, for so long, the, the team owners were able to continue without any real kind of collective resistance. And so I think in some ways they were taking inspiration from the civil rights movement and the idea of have, building a kind of collective voice in opposition to oppression. There was also at the time, you know, the, the emergence of black power um, and black power ideology, ideas about self-determination, ideas about um, autonomy, uh, and, uh, you know, the creation of black wealth and black economic uplift. And so for me, I can see a direct relation between black, black players really organizing themselves into this union and then making very specific and much further reaching demands of the NBA and attempting to radically reshape the power balance between the mostly black players and the not majority white, the all white team owners. Um, so that in itself became a kind of expression of black power, not the most radical expression, but I do think that we have overlooked their, um, their opposition to you know, the NBA's monopoly in the broader black freedom struggle. And, you know, as you detail in the book, and really is the case any time in our history that black people have organized and asserted their rights and tried to restructure the balance of power, there, there's a backlash. There's always a backlash. And there was in this case. And as you detail in the book, it, it centered very much the way the way the, the now predominantly black, you know, predominantly black and, and more assertive black league was players and league was being portrayed. Um, and that image was kind of shaped around the, you know, the you talked about the undisciplined kind of streetball part, but also the violence and the drugs and, and how that became kind of the 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 stereotypical image of the black ball player of the late 70s. Um, you start the book with with. Um, this kind of landmark article by Cobbs in the, in the Los Angeles Times about, you know, people claiming that it may be as much as 75% of people in the league were taking, doing drugs. Um, I, I guess my question is for you, how, how big was the drug problem in the late seventies in the NBA? Was it a problem? How big of a problem was it? If so. Yeah, so I was actually less interested in unpacking that specific question and much more interested in looking at what was the discussion around Chris Cobbs's article. You know, many we we rarely hear any um discussion of a the league's response internally and sort of what were 
what was the commissioner's office saying? What were the security folks saying? What were, you know, various team owners and general managers saying on the record or with their names attached, right? What right, were a lot, lot of sources, things? right? No, a lot, lot of anonymous sources. sources. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and what were the players saying? What were the players saying? Um, and so one of the things that I found in sifting through all of the coverage, looking at uh, the Lawrence O'Brien papers, and so he was commissioner at that time, and he had to mount some kind of response to this. And there, so there was a lot of discussion internally, um, even actually the folks who were named in Cobbs's article wrote these letters, like these furious letters to Larry O'Brien saying, I did not say that. I did not give a number. I don't know where, <laughs> you know, so who knows, maybe they were sort of protecting themselves. But on the other hand, there is some murkiness there as to whether or not they actually claimed that it was, quote unquote, 40 to 75%, which is incidentally is such a huge range. I mean, is it 40? Is it 75? And of course, many people interpreted that as being 75% of the players are addicted to cocaine, right? That's <laughs> so I think that one of the things that I found among the players' discussions was that they were sick and tired of being cast as junkies. They were like, wait a second this isn't me. I'm not doing this. Yeah, there are folks that we know who experiment with cocaine. It was, you know, 1980. Most folks who had a little bit of disposable income were, you know, uh, celebrated celebrities or, you know, wealthy professionals had dabbled in cocaine. <laughs> Um, you know, which was a very expensive drug at that time and actually was more associated with white folks than black folks. And I think that that was another part of the rub was that, oh, what are these guys using cocaine for? And this might spell disaster because we don't want those guys using cocaine. It might be okay for Wall Street bankers to use it, but ooh, not these young men who might sort of spiral out of control and, you know, endanger the entire league. Um, so, I mean, even somebody um, oh, had commented on the fact that, why aren't they talking about alcohol? Alcohol is a huge problem, you know, across sports leagues, not just in the NBA, but in other sectors. But there was no discussion of, well, maybe we need to provide some alcohol rehabilitation. And in fact, when you look at the case of Bernard King, even, right, part of what I was trying to do in chapter seven by digging into his life story was to a show that this was a young man who, you know, had much like Connie Hawkins got sort of swept up into uh, a criminal justice system uh, targeted while he was a college player by local police who her, were harassing him. Um, and he had already experienced trauma, the trauma of physical abuse as a child. And that, you know, experience with the police and all of the pressures of being uh, a you know a budding uh, 
a star in the NCAA and then into the NBA had, you know, triggered him to, to start self-medicating. And so if you look at his story, it's, it becomes very clear that cocaine was sort of a minor player in his story. It was really much more about alcohol and, you know, um, again, trying to self-medicate because like anyone else, you know, b basketball players have complex lives with past traumas and other um, issues that they're dealing with off the court. Um, and none of that was really covered in the larger sort of public discussion of this. It was just immediately a, a discussion of a kind of moral panic about young black men all of a sudden having access to wealth, maybe they couldn't handle themselves. So they're out there living the good life, you know, taking cocaine and, and not being good disciplined basketball players and providing family friendly entertainment for the NBA's fans. So there were so many narratives that I was trying to unpack there. I, I don't, um, I'm not claiming that nobody did cocaine or that these guys were, you know, not um, living fast lives in some aspect, but I think it was much less, um, you know, about the reality of it and much more about these kinds of racialized narratives about drug use more generally um, that made it into such a a big story and i was just kind of confused as to why nobody had actually taken that story and said hmm is this true or you know like this sounds a little off you know what's going on here what's the discussion surrounding it um you know always in in a lot of other works of the time period it would be mentioned in one sentence and then confirmed and then folks would just move on and i just i didn't believe it so i had to dig further yeah and i'm so glad you did because it is it's just kind of this accepted narrative that you know the late 70s early 80s was this time of just immense drug use among NBA players and the violence and all that. And, and even David Stern kind of played that up. Right. I mean, once, you know, when, when, when he took over and I guess it was 84, um, he kind of, he said, yeah, the league, you know, we had a real image problem and, and, and he would often reference, I think to toot his own horn at, at times at how he had turned things around. And, and, it, and in some ways he did in that, I think he, I think, he deserves some credit for embracing black culture to an extent. He said, okay, you know what, I, I'm going to work with this. Um, I think you said in the book, he, he, he portrayed it as a marketing issue, you know, and he, and, and he did, he, I think Stern did a great job of marketing the individual stars that he had in the league and, and, and incorporating black culture into the league, but it was always kind of this, certainly his whole tenure as commissioner was this kind of this weird dance he did between incorporating black culture, you know, he, he invited hip hop into the game and, but almost to what you were saying is you were a dancer, but it has, let's keep it clean, right? Like clean version. And there were times where there'd be with the dress code or, you know, uh, harsh penalties for fighting after the, the mouse in the palace, he was constantly doing this dance of, of, 
incorporating black culture, but not too much. So I guess my question for you is, I mean, what are some of the ways that he did work in African-American culture? And what were some of the ways that he kind of fought to keep it back or, or, or control it, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because he, he, I think he was very astute, very astute. One of the things that we forget about David Stern is that he had been around since 1966. So, you know, he shows up in chapter one because he's on the legal team that's attempting to figure out what to do about Connie Hawkins. So he's seen the entire trajectory of the 1970s where the league you know, becomes essentially a black league. Um, the style changes, the stars change. Um, and then he sees, you know, I'm sure he must have been reading the coverage and monitoring, you know, what the responses to these crises were from his seat um, in the NBA's league office. You know, um, so I think that a lot of what he learned from the 1970s about what didn't work actually influenced his um techniques in the early 80s um, in terms of, you know, rather than running away from the blackness of the NBA, let's lean into it a little bit, figure out how to curate it. And I would even say, make it an aesthetic dimension of the league, but not a political dimension of the league. So we'll allow uh, you know, and we won't disparage, we'll actually play up black style, whether on the court or off the court within certain boundaries, of course, you know, we'll try and make basketball look more current, more hip. And one way to do that is to associate it with black culture and black music um, but always within, you know, certain limits. I think the, the, the genius of David Stern was figuring out how to market, you know, the blackness of the game and, and how to turn the NBA really into a multinational conglomerate with multiple streams of revenue. He was the architect behind that, standardizing the games, um, making sure that, um, you know, folks knew what they were going to get when they showed up at a game. They knew what they were going to get each time a broadcast showed. So he understood that aspect of it. And he also understood that he couldn't, he could no longer sort of skirt the blackness of the league. He had to figure out how to incorporate it into the actual management and then also into the marketing of the league. Um, and I do think that, I mean, he was extremely astute about how to toe that balance, but it was, I think, an uneasy truce. It was always an unstable truce between the players and ownership and you see that in these moments where after the malice in the palace there's this attempt then to 
at least outwardly clamp down on certain, you know, unpalatable or less palatable aspects of black culture, almost as a show to the fans. Hey, don't worry. We're cleaning it up. We're in control. These guys, we're going to keep these guys in control. They can't wear their chains. We're, we're going to, you know, we are going to um, punish them even more harshly for any fighting on the court. So, yeah, he, he, I mean, he deserves credit as a master marketer, but I don't think he cleaned up the league. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. Um, well, because, yeah, and there were plenty of instances of, of drug drug use when he, you know, when he was commissioner and times change, things change, you know, you had the crack epidemic at a certain time and then that kind of subsided to an extent. And yeah, there were larger societal forces at play, I guess I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. And to sort of, um, you know, separate out the league and say, oh, this is the site where all of this badness is happening is just inaccurate. I mean, we know you've read so much sports history, you know, that sports always reinforces and reflects broader power dynamics outside of the sports industry. So, you know, it's always important to contextualize these things you know, and, and look at how they they relate to broader dynamics beyond the court. Yeah, um, I want to ask you about this this concept of uh, vertical integration. I guess it was called. That you know, you talk about. Obviously, we talked about the numbers of of black players in the '70s and how it had gotten up to whatever it was seventy five percent by the end of the decade. Um, and then you talk about you know higher positions, coaches, front office, all of that. Um, you focused on the 75 finals with, with Al Adels and, um, and Casey Jones as, you know, two of the first, two of the first African-American coaches. And, and, um, and at that time there wasn't much vertical integration. I wonder how, how do you think the NBA is doing now in terms of vertical integration? Well, I think there's definitely been a move to have more high profile, um, African-Americans, particularly former players who are investing in teams. Um, I think at the end of the day, the industry itself is still largely controlled by white multimillionaires and billionaires. Um, And in some cases, you know, there are still relics of the past who are you know, in team ownership, you know, folks who've been forced out of team ownership after many decades of racist, misogynistic behavior, but only when it comes to light, then that's when the league takes action. So on the one hand, I think that, you know, in comparison to other sports, the NBA is certainly doing a better job of vertical integration, but, you know, it's still an incomplete, it's an incomplete project. And I think the other thing I, to, to question is whether or not, you know, is the goal really just vertical integration? Is there something now that the players have 
you know, more um, percentage of the profits, more rights, um, you know, of, of free agency. Is the goal really just vertical integration or is it something bigger? And, you know, I sort of end off the book with this pie in the sky idea of what activism in sport could look like, you know, especially with some leadership from players in the NBA and folks who are concerned about labor and how labor operates in professional sport. And that we actually have to have a larger discussion about, you know, what does it mean that, you know, you still have uh, uh, folks who work in concessions who are getting paid, you know, an unlivable wage or the folks who work to put the game together, you know, where is their place in this? What about the folks who manufacture all of the merchandise that's being sold. I think there's a larger conversation to be had about both the racial and the labor dynamics of that aspect of the sports industry. Um, and that, I think, is the next frontier. Yeah, it'll be in- interesting to see where we go from there. Um, all right, Teresa, I could I could talk to you about this all day, like all, night, all, all weekend. It's Friday. We, just, we could just go through the weekend. But uh, I know you have a, a family and a life. And so I'm going to let you go. Um, I do have one more question for you that I like to ask all my guests. Um, but first, let me just say again, the name of Teresa's book is Black Ball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the Generation That Saved the Soul of the NBA. Um, I, I found it fascinating. I mean, if, if you're interested in the history of, of basketball, it not only is it a great book, I think it's an important book um, because it really dispels some um, just kind of really well ingrained mythology about the history of the game. And so I'm, I'm really glad you, you wrote this book. Um, my question for you is, um, what is your all time favorite sports book? Oh, geez. You can't say black ball. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. So um, one of my favorites is Marchese's Redemption Song. Am I getting the title right? I don't, I don't know that. Ma- I don't know Muhammad that. Ali. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. That for me has always been a model of how to write sports history. Mm-hmm you know, tying it to, to larger phenomenon and, and really paying homage to the importance of sports and athletes, you know, in our society and how they shape so many conversations about all sorts of different things, politically, socially, and culturally. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read that one. I, 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 I know, I know what you're talking about, but I definitely need to check it out. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's one of my favorites. All right. Well, Teresa, thank you again so much for, for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. I enjoyed it as well. And as I said, you know, I could probably go on and on and on, <laughs> especially since I've been, you know, working on this stuff for years. So it's yeah. finally nice to actually be able to, to talk about it and get yeah. it out there. Well, best of luck with the book. Thanks so much.